Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com. From Texas Public Radio, this is Texas Matters, a weekly radio news magazine that looks at the issues, events, and people in the Lone Star State. Today on Texas Matters, the Pirates of the Gulf Coast. It's the frontier. It's pure chaos. From 1699 to about 1820, the land was up for grabs. And you got seven different groups of people trying to get their share of land and, and, and the riches that came with it. This is Texas Matters. From Texas Public Radio, I'm David Martin Davies. Many are familiar with the tales of the pirates of the Caribbean, but there were pirates, real pirates, shipwrecks, and plunder all along the Gulf of Mexico. Before there were cowboys, gunfights, and cattle drives, Texas adventurers were Spanish conquistadors, seafaring warriors, and rogues who fought along the shoreline between Galveston and Tallahassee. Civilization's foothold on the region was weak, giving men of desperation opportunities to fight for gold, God, and glory. These stories are not lost to Davy Jones' locker, but captured to history and retold in the book Pirates, Raiders, and Invaders of the Gulf Coast. Ryan Starrett and Josh Foreman are co-authors. They tell us the real-life swashbucklers were nowhere near the glamorous, romantic, lovable villains of Hollywood lore. They lived lives much more gritty, cruel, and short. I asked the co-authors why these pirates and raiders are so largely overlooked when it comes to the telling of Texas history. I don't think people outside of Texas realize how big Texas really is and how extensive the coastline is. And a lot of Galveston played a major role in Texas history. And of course, the the port in Houston and uh, those were disputed territories as well. They were up for grabs until 1820s and 1830s. And so there are a lot of filibusters, a, a lot of raiders, a lot of people trying to take advantage of chaos in East Texas. A lot of opportunists. It would make sense, Josh, that people would, uh, in the settlement of Texas, that they were going to do that originally along the coastline, and that there would be, this not that far, from the Caribbean, Pirates of the Caribbean, Jack Sparrow, the fictional character and all that, but there were Black, Blackbeard and other real live pirates. Did they have interaction with the Texas coastline? It's funny that you mentioned earlier Spanish conquistadors, because... Yeah. We, we don't really think of conquistadors as pirates, but in essence, they very much were pirates. So um, one of the stories that, we, that first attracted us to the Gulf Coast is a story that's pretty well known in Texas. It's the story of Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca. And he was this uh, early Spanish conquistador um, who accompanied this guy named Narvaez to Florida. And they took this big contingent of more than 300 um, Spanish soldiers and, and uh, various other people. And they came in by boat. So you've got that boat aspect of what we traditionally think of as piracy. But when they disembarked, they were their mission was, we're going to find gold. We're going to take it. We're going to su- subjugate the people here. This is our land now. And um, they landed around Tampa Bay and disembarked 
And very quickly, you know, this is 1528. So you're talking about um, early, early contact between Native Americans and Europeans uh, along the Gulf Coast area. And they very quickly found out that they were, um, well, they, there was no gold. They were being led on a wild goose chase and their armor and their expedition was not really cut out for moving through Florida swamps. And the uh, natives in Florida were harrying them, shooting arrows at them and killing them. And they were having the most miserable experience that, uh, that a person could have. So they, they kind of fled from Florida and they had sent their ships away foolishly. So they ended up having to make these crude rafts and uh, melt down some of their iron tools and armor into nails and, uh, they, they all piled on board these rafts and went back out into the Gulf. So they were essentially just kind of floating through the Gulf toward Texas. But um, this big group of pirates kind of saw their fortunes completely reversed. And um, we, you know, Ryan and I are from Mississippi, so we, we always tend to look at things from a Mississippi perspective. And between Florida and Texas, they actually landed on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And um, they were just about on the verge of death, all, uh, 240 who were left and they stopped on the beach and just by sheer luck, there was a, an Indian village there and these the Indians were nice enough to share water and food with them. So these Spanish conquistadors were just about to die of thirst. But, um, after they got a meal and some water from these, uh, Indians, Pascagoula Indians, the Indians ended up ambushing them that night and driving them back out into the Gulf of Mexico. So they got back on their rafts, um, kept moving toward Texas. Their goal was to move to, toward Mexico where there was a Spanish presence. And they ended up getting tossed around on the sea. A couple of the rafts sank and um, Cabeza de Vaca washed up at Galveston Island. And he ended up um, the story that Texans know, you know, he moved by foot all the way through the entire state of Texas. It's one of the most incredible stories that uh, I've ever read, but um, that he kind of started out as a pirate and ended up being this lowly um, person who ended up walking through Texas for about eight years. I remember being told about Cabeza de Vaca when I was a kid and, of course, uh, in, in, in the classroom and everyone snickers when you first hear the word because, it, you know, we all knew it meant head of the cow and the teacher had to let us know that he didn't have – his head was not of that of a cow. You know, it was just his name. But it's still kind of weird. It is. When I brought that name up to my Spanish friend, that's the first thing she said, head of the cow. And she was laughing. The Jack Sparrow and the Buccaneers and the Earl Flynn, Captain Blood stuff of, of the coastline, did we see that in along the uh, Gulf Gulf of Mexico from Florida to uh, Galveston? Was this an area that was rich in the sword play and the fighting over gold? I'll start this answer, and and then Ryan can can uh, chime in. This is Josh. Um, the it's funny that you mentioned Pirates of the Caribbean because this person that we researched is almost the archetype of a Pirates of the Caribbean British sea captain. So um, around the, the uh, 1740s, this young Swiss mercenary named Jean Blomart leaves Switzerland and joins the British Royal Navy. 
And this was something that was fairly common for um, young Swiss men to do at the time. And he ended up serving for 20 years in the Royal Navy. And um, this was a time when the Royal Navy was literally traveling all around the world, fighting sea battles with France and um, having many, many interactions with pirates. And um, Blomart, he's not, we don't really have much of a record of his time in the Royal Navy, but we do know that toward the end of his career, he had become a captain. So he had control of his own ship and he was based in Pensacola. So um, he would have been there um, at right around the close of the French and Indian War in, in command of a ship, and he would have worn that um, archetypal sea captain's uniform. So he would have had the, the navy blue wool breeches, the black tricorn hat, um, the brass buttons, the white waistcoat, and he carried a basket hilt broadsword. So he, he really was that um, ideal of a British sea captain. And he ended up, um, at that time, you know, the Spanish were kind of in control of everything west of the Mississippi, and the British wanted control of everything east of the Mississippi. And he ended up moving to that very frontier area where the um, Spanish governor and the, the English territories butted up against each other. He ended up moving to Natchez. Mississippi and he had um many many run-ins he had actually had a run-in with a river pirate in Natchez and then he had run-ins with the Spanish coming up from New Orleans so I'll let Ryan talk a little bit about the the Spanish presence there well Josh calls this guy a river pirate his name is James Willing the Spanish and the British would call him a pirate we Americans call him our first marine James Willing was born into a wealthy family up in Pennsylvania, and he's a bon vivant. He's a bohemian. He really likes the high life. He's from a very wealthy family. His brother is partners with Robert Morris, who financed the American Revolution. Now, just before the revolution starts, Willing moves down to Natchez in 1774. Uh, he, he blows through all of his money real quickly. When he hears about the rebellion back on the East Coast, he tries to convert his fellow citizens in Natchez and bring them to the American cause. But he's just as bad a revolutionary as he is handling his own money, and he's driven out of Natchez. Uh, a lot of scholars say it's because he was fleeing his debts as well. So he goes back to the Continental Congress, and he tries to convince them to go and raid Natchez and open up the Mississippi River. That way, trade between Spain and the United States will be unhindered, and Britain can be brought down. Well, the Continental Congress says no, but then Robert Moore steps in again and says he'll finance this rebellion down in Natchez. And so Willing puts together this ragamuffin force of about 40 adventurers. They set sail down the Mississippi River. They land a couple of miles north of Natchez, and then it's just a reign of terror for the next six months or so. He's, he's, he's uh, ransacking anything he can. He's stealing anything he can, including slaves. Now, at the time, Great Britain is at peace with Spain, and so the Spanish governor, Bernardo de Galvez, for whom Galveston is named after, uh, ends up welcoming British refugees who are fleeing this river pirate, Willing. And then Willing gradually makes his way down to New Orleans, and at first, Galveston is, or Galvez is pretty excited because he hears that Colonel Willing is coming down at the head of an army of a thousand well-trained Americans. 
Uh, but then when he sees Willing, when Willing shows up with his boats full of loot, Galvez quickly recognizes him for what he is. And Spain, or uh, Great Britain, of course, is demanding that Spain turn the pirate Willing over. But uh, Galvez refuses to do so. Uh, he, he holds on to Willing, but then Willing quickly wears out his welcome. Remember, he's a bohemian. He likes the finer things in life, and he's in New Orleans. New Orleans now. And so he goes wild there, and he starts really annoying the governor. Uh, he starts asking for more money. Galvez keeps telling Willing, look, you got to go. You've worn out your welcome. But Willing says, I can't. I can't sail across the Gulf of Mexico. The British uh, Navy is patrolling it. They'll take me. And I can't go north again back through Natchez for obvious reasons. And so he stays and stays and stays, and Galvez can't get rid of him. Finally, the American ambassador down in New Orleans writes to the Continental Congress and says, you guys got to get Willing out of here. This is a nightmare. This is a disaster. We're trying to ally with Spain, and he's ruining everything. Finally, Galvez just can't take any more of Willing, so he coughs up the equivalent. He coughs up six thousand of his own dollars, and sends Willing's men back north. He puts Willing on a boat, sails him through the Gulf, and then, ironically, Willing ends up being arrested right outside of Delaware. A British ship took him, and he spends most of the rest of the Revolutionary War in prison. His goal was to open up the Mississippi River, and in the end, Britain decides to send another navy and an army to Pensacola and send another detachment up to Natchez. So his plan was an utter failure. There's a little story about Willing that coincides with Blomart's story, if you'd like to hear that. And yeah. it's a, a nice little anecdote of piracy. So um, Blomart, the British sea captain who was originally from Switzerland, he ends up moving to Natchez and he spends a few years there and becomes very successful. So he is distilling rum, 160 gallon still distilling rum, trading it with the Choctaw for bear oil. Um, he's supplying people who are going up and down the Mississippi River. He's um, got his farm, his orchard, his fine furniture, his feather mattress. Everything's going really well for him, and he's probably the richest person in the area. And he's retired at this point, so he's not an active British sea captain. But um, the the king of Great Britain enlists him out of retirement to take this ship full of goods up into this area where the Spanish were trying to win over the Indians. So this area, this is the area where now Arkansas, Kentucky, Missouri, and Illinois come together. And so Blomart is supposed to load up this boat with um, 150 pounds of gunpowder, 280 pounds of shot, 36 guns, tons of cloth, tons of um, uh, necklaces, bracelets, knives, axes, and 200 gallons of rum, and he's going to take this boat up the Mississippi River and deliver it to these uh, Native American tribes. And the plan is you give them all these gifts, they're going to come over to our side, and they'll be our allies, not the Spanish. So Blomart sets off up the Mississippi River, and he's in this small boat that has six oars and a sail, but he moves so slowly up the Mississippi River that he's only covering four miles a day. So he ends up moving for four months up the Mississippi River trying to get to this area uh, with these Indian tribes. 
and Willing comes down the river just as he's arriving at his destination and pulls up to his smaller boat and says, all that stuff that you are taking up to these Indian tribes in service of your country, I'm going to get it all. And he literally arrested Blomart right then and there, took his boat, took all of his gift goods. And um, Blomart had spent all of his own money on these gift goods, and it was a, the equivalent of 600,000 pounds uh, in today's dollars. So it was a, a f small fortune that he had spent on this. And um, Willing, this American Marine slash river pirate, ended up taking Blomart and imprisoning him in New Orleans. So you've got this classic British sea captain who's now retired, and he falls victim to piracy of all places at the uh, in the American interior where Kentucky, Arkansas, Missouri, and Illinois come together. I am not a pirate, but I long to be Sailing by the stars across the seven seas Living with no earthly cares, my mates and me The envy of a worldly man who are not This is Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. Ryan Starrett and Josh Foreman are the co-authors of the book, Pirates, Raiders, and Invaders of the Gulf Coast. There's a, a little bit here about Davy Crockett. People probably don't think much about Davy Crockett on the open the open waters, but what is it, what's the story that you tell? Crockett would have been one of the invaders that we talked about. Uh, Pensacola plays a, a key part in our story, and even though it was still in Spanish hands, Andrew Jackson decides to take it. Uh, then, but then you've got the Creeks. The Creeks are going through their own civil war, the White Creeks, the Red Creeks. And some of them are allied with the Americans or are certainly pro-American in sentiments. But then the war faction is very anti-American and even more anti-Peace Creek faction. And so before Jackson can take Pensacola, he's got to neutralize the Creeks. And so he gets uh, Davy Crockett enlists with his some of his Tennessee volunteers. And then we tell the story of the Battle of Fort Mims, uh, briefly the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, and then the conquest or the final capture of Pensacola. So would David Crockett be classified as a pirate, raider, or invader? Uh, probably an invader. Uh, but it depends on how you see how you see Jackson. It, it depends on your perspective. From a from an American perspective, he's one of our 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 legends, one of our heroes. From the Spanish perspective, then he's he's a land pirate. Because Andrew Jackson had no right legally to be in Florida at that time in Spanish Florida, it's breaking an international treaty or international law. So the, the way the Spanish view would be very different than us, which would be different than the the Creek, of course. So Crockett's a complicated character. Well, that tracks with what happened at the Alamo because he was considered by Santa Ana to be a land pirate, right? Which is ironic because Crockett gets there late and he was nowhere near the quote-unquote scoundrel that uh, like, uh, James Bowie would be. 
Crockett didn't traditionally have a, issues with, with Spain. This area that we're talking about, you're covering a lot of land and sea, coastline, in a time when basically, what, the, there was no law, no order? It was just... Uh... It, it's the frontier. It's pure chaos. From 1699 to about 1820, the land was up for grabs. And you got seven different groups of people trying to get their share of land and, and, and the riches that came with it. There, there was even a pirate community that uh, existed off the coast called Barataria that uh, the Lafitte's were kind of the central figures in. So you have a, um, we think about Spain and, and Great Britain and America, but you even had these little independent groups who were kind of had their own casual states that out, out of the reach of anyone. And they were operating there. They were doing their piracy from those places. And I'm glad Josh mentioned the, the Lafitte's because you've mentioned Jack Sparrow a few times. If there's any historical Jack Sparrow figure on the Gulf Coast, it would be Jean Lafitte. Uh, as Josh was saying, they operated out of Barataria in the swamps of New Orleans. They got a, a privateering commission from some uh, propped-up government in Cartagena so they could be legal pirates. Uh, of course, you know the story of the Battle of New Orleans. They contributed to Jackson's victory over the British there. And the two Lafitte brothers were the toast of the town for a few years. But eventually, America starts to crack down on the international slave trade and piracy in general. Uh, and despite popular movies with pirates going and stealing chests of gold and silver and, and all that, uh, most pirates stole stuff like coffee, rum, whatever the merchant man was carrying. And for the Lafitte brothers, their go-to uh, source of wealth would have been the slave trade. They would capture slave ships, bring them in, launder them, or smuggle them in, then launder them. And with the United States cracking down on, on piracy in general and the slave trade, the Lafitte's become unpopular in New Orleans, and eventually they have to move. And they're going to end up on, on Galveston Island in the early 1820s. And that was, as you say, an end of an era when they were on the Galveston Island. What, what was it about Galveston Island that made it um, attractive to pirates. If the Gulf Coast was pure chaos and a time for opportunists to, to make their mark, Galveston even more so, because you got civil war erupting all over Mexico. Uh, is America going to side with Spain? Is it going to side with one of these revolutionary governments? Uh, who owns that part of Texas anyway? Uh, where is the border between the United States and Texas? Uh, well, just like where's the border between the U.S. and Florida? So all of this stuff is up in the air and it's, it's pure chaos. Nobody has a a sizable army there. And then Galveston's got that that awesome port as well. And it's really shallow water, which is perfect for a privateer because the Lafitte's can smuggle their goods into Galveston. But then it's larger warships that are trying to, to hunt down and eliminate these pirates, can't sail, can't navigate the same waters. And then the Lafitte's kept their connections in New Orleans as well. So they would steal from a slave ship, bring the slaves into Galveston, send them up into Spanish territory in Louisiana, walk them to the border. And then the Lafitte's would sell their slaves at $1 per pound. And the American slave traders are picking them up in Spanish territory and crossing the border. So they're getting a real cheap deal on slaves, but then they have to take all of the risk themselves for smuggling in slaves when it's, it's illegal to, to have uh, the international slave trade 
had been illegalized at that point. Do you remember the iconic photo or the iconic paintings of Jean Lafitte? Can you describe, give a few characteristics of what he actually looked like? Uh, Jack Sparrow, the long <laughs> the pirate hat, the pirate cutlass. Uh, he's got a, a beautiful blonde maiden draped over his arms. He looked like the, the stereotypical the black, Hollywood pirate. The black, wispy black beard. Didn't he have that and mustache? Right. right. We really romanticized John Lafitte in the immediate aftermath of the Battle of New Orleans. But really, he's a slave smuggler. I think John Lafitte only fought one battle in his life. Some scholars say there was a second one. And the one battle he fights against an armed ship is his last battle. Uh, he gets gets into an engagement. He thinks he's chasing a merchantman, but it's a trap. They turn and they fire on him. And Lafitte gets either hit by uh, shrapnel, grape shot, or splinters from the wood that the cannonball hit went into him. And a few hours after that, Jean Lafitte is dead. And then the, his... His men throw his body over at sea, and so America's most famous pirate died a pirate's death, and his body is somewhere in the Gulf of Mexico now. And then when his brother dies down near Cancun, that's that's pretty much the end of piracy as we know it. So the end of piracy, was that brought about through the expansion of stability, law and order, and, and governments, or what? You're exactly right. That, that's exactly what happened. But then we had a civil war, U.S. civil war, in Galveston and many of the coastal areas. They were fought over all over again. Did pirates have a role in that? Well, we called them privateers by then. They're privateers means you have a sanctioned. you have a, a, a like a license of some sort from a from a government. Yeah, you're working from for a legitimate government. And and so what did they do for like a Galveston changed hands several times? Yes, sir. What do you think people should be thinking about uh, the stuff of legends and stories and incredible daring do and men that live by their wits and by their luck? Well, I hate to say this, but pirates were not as romantic as they're portrayed in the movies. A real, a real pirate's life is they're nothing but opportunists and smugglers, and they're heavily, heavily involved in the slave trade as well. John? Yeah, it's it's funny how um, we we mentioned different perspectives cast a different light on um, some of these figures. Willing, the first U.S. Marine who ended up practicing river piracy, is really thought of by Americans as um, a positive figure. So he, you know, he kind of kicked off this whole U.S. Marine Corps thing and and he did the he did patriotic work by raiding all of these, you know, merchants along the Mississippi River. And uh, Blomart, who is the the British sea captain, who exemplifies um, loyalty, service, bravery, courage, uh, scholarship. He was the resident scholar in Natchez industry. He he basically embodies every characteristic of that we value in our culture. Um, he is completely forgotten about in Southern history, uh, for the most part, and it's because. You know, he ended up fighting against James Willing, who's now thought of as a patriotic figure in the American Revolution. So um, he he ultimately, Blomart ultimately got exiled from Natchez because he lost a battle with Galvez. But um, it's funny how the, some of these figures that we think about are just the our memories of them and our perception of them completely changes based on where we are and, and what nation we're a citizen of now.
and whose banner we fly. And, and I would I'd throw out two more names too. Bernardo de Galvez was a, a very chivalric, uh, highly honorable man, uh, somebody that you would want your children to look up to. And then you got someone like Bowie, who's brave and courageous and, and uh, uh, died a, a soldier's death and all that. But really, he's a land swindler. And if all his land swindles had gone through, he would have become the richest man in, in America based on on false land deeds. And yet today we kind of dismiss Galvez and we we've elevated Bowie. And then I think most most of us are more like Crockett, uh, fall somewhere in between the Galvez and, and Bowie. Most people on the frontier, most people on the Gulf Coast in 1699 to 1820 are simply looking for a living, uh, looking for their own piece of land, looking for a way to provide generational wealth for them and their family. Ryan Starrett and Josh Foreman are co-authors of the book, Pirates, Raiders, and Invaders of the Gulf Coast, published by The History Press. That's it for this edition of Texas Matters. Thanks for listening. I'm David Martin Davies. You can email us at texasmatters at tpr.org. You can find past episodes of Texas Matters on our website at tpr.org. And you can download, subscribe, and rate us wherever you get your cool podcast. And tune in again next week for another edition of Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com.